Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Professor Caroline Wright, who I had the pleasure of working with for almost four years at the Wellcome Sanger Institute and who is a leader in the field of genomic medicine. Caroline holds a personal chair in genomic medicine at the University of Exeter and leads some really important research on the application of genome sequencing technologies to diagnosing rare disease, in particular developmental disorders. Caroline's played a significant role at Genomics England, serving as a scientific lead during the early stage of the project and today working in the clinical interpretation. So Caroline, thank you so much for joining me today and looking forward to the discussion. Thanks very much, Patrick. Great to see you again. For people who aren't aware of you and your work, can you talk a little bit about some of the major projects that you're involved with and what are some of the challenges that you're working on? So I've been in genetics now for about 15 years, I guess. And primarily, most recently, I've been working in two broad areas. So one is really diagnosis of monogenic conditions and particularly developmental disorders. So obviously, I've been involved with the Deciphering Developmental Disorders Study, the DDD study, its inception back in 2011. And that project is still going. It's been an amazing project to be involved with. We're still finding diagnoses in children affected by really severe, previously undiagnosed developmental disorders. So I'm still involved with that project and trying to work out better ways to analyze the data and find more diagnoses fundamentally. My other sort of side of the work I do is, is increasingly with population cohorts like UK Biobank, again, an incredible resource, and trying to understand in those cases in particular what causes incomplete penetrance. So individuals who are carrying what we think are disease-causing variants in genes that are linked with particular diseases, but they don't seem to have any other phenotypes of those diseases. So it's trying to understand why these individuals don't have those conditions and why they're not getting diagnosed. So looking at some of those questions and some of that will then translate into thinking about how we look at population cohorts like newborn screening, where we might find new pathogenic variants and we're not really sure quite how to handle them. So that's the kind of broad scope of my work. Amazing. Why don't we pull on those two threads in order? If we start with deciphering developmental disorders, you referenced, I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, have been discovered in terms of the causes of disease, but it's less than half of the cases in cohorts like DDD, right? Maybe you can talk a little bit about where the lion's share of diagnoses coming from and then where do you think the next half are going to come from? So far, as you say, to an extent, we found the low-hanging fruit, though not to say it hasn't been difficult to do, but still, we've really focused on coding regions. We've focused on variants which are disrupting genes that, by and large, been associated with similar conditions before. We've obviously done really large-scale studies, so statistically powered to show that these genes really do are really associated with these diseases. And obviously, that will continue, that kind of work that's particularly led by Matt Hells at the Sanger Institute. We'll get larger cohorts and we'll get more data and we'll find more things that way. And that statistical approach is really important. But we also need to think about other ways of finding these ultra rare conditions. So some of it is better variant interpretation. There's quite a lot of kids in the study who have a variant in a gene which is linked with these conditions. And we just don't know if that variant is causal or not. So we really need to just get better at variant interpretation of the coding variants. We probably need to expand out of our standard coding model into the non-canonical coding space, so exons that aren't always necessarily included, perhaps the fetal-specific exons that we're not currently looking at, as well as the regulatory regions near genes we know about. So I think it's starting to expand the genomic footprint that we look at so that we can understand variants a lot better, as well as you know, obviously discovering new disorders. I don't think we'll get to 100% diagnosis, but I'm confident we'll keep increasing the diagnostic yield for a while yet. Maybe you can give people a sense of the scale of the DDD, how many families and also how many diseases are we talking about? Or do we think we're talking about within that group? I realize that question is probably a, that's a research question in and of itself. 
So the simple part of that is we've got 13,500 children, which about 10,000 are with their parents as well. So we've sequenced about 33,000 individuals. And at this point, our best guess is that we've diagnosed about 40%, so about 5,000 of the children. So as you say, about half still don't, more than half don't have a diagnosis. And of the ones that have got a diagnosis, I think each diagnosis is obviously pretty rare. I think there's about 800 disorders represented in our diagnosed group. So some are seen multiple times. I think 80 is the most common in our group in these individuals. And then some diagnoses we've only found once. And so I don't know how long that tail will continue. I expect we'll find more diagnoses in some of those genes as we improve our variant interpretation, for example, or start expanding into the non-coding space. And others will be really, really rare causes in new genes that we haven't seen yet. Some of the work you've done is looking at missense variants and in silico protein structural analysis that stood out to me as an area that has probably gotten really exciting in the last couple of years as new models for protein folding have come out. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the challenge in that space and then some of the work you've done. Sure. So this, for me, is a really fantastic piece of work because it links back to my PhD. So my PhD was originally in protein folding, oh, um, wow. protein chemistry and biophysics. So it's kind of exciting to be able to bring some of that knowledge from the protein world into genetic diagnosis. So it's one of the reasons I've been particularly focused on it. And of course, it does offer us the opportunity to improve our understanding, particularly of missense variants and in-frame insertions and deletions in a sort of biologically informed way. We can obviously bring the three-dimensional side of protein structure to understanding the genetic variants, which is really interesting and really important when you've got enzymes and things, and you're obviously clusters of variants that are changing the performance of the protein, but they're not clustered in on genome space. They're only clustered in three-dimensional protein space. And obviously things like, you know, AlphaFold and these more genome-wide protein structure predictions now should allow us to do that much more systematically. Historically, only, you know, maybe 30% of the human proteome is covered by experimental three-dimensional structures, whereas now we have predictions for more than well over 95%. And so that should allow us hopefully to do that in a more systematic way. So I think there's plenty of exciting and interesting things to do there. And hopefully this, all the sort of automated in silico tools that do pathogenicity prediction will benefit from that sort of data as well. What's your sense of how many of the 60% of missing diagnoses are coming from these missed coding regions? Because it seems like a real struggle to put together estimates of that missing 60%, how much of it is missense variants. The idea of exons that we're not even looking at is a new one to me. It makes total sense. As you know, I banged my head against the non-coding problem for about four years and we found some interesting things but we didn't find a 20% missing diagnoses. What do you think is making up those 60% of children whose cases are still unexplained? Well, it's important to say I don't know, but yeah. my feel is that each of these are probably going to have a small contribution. So we've probably got the lion's share of, you know, de novo, lots of function mutations in genes that have already been linked with these developmental disorder conditions. That's maybe, you know, 30% or something diagnostic. We're not going to find anything like that. We're not going to find a similarly well-powered analysis technique or something to go after that's going to suddenly diagnose loads, I don't think. But I think probably almost everything we think of, whether it's understanding variants in the translated regions or promoters and enhancers and all sorts of constrained non-coding regulatory regions that we just now haven't really been able to look at until now. I think there's going to, I really hope there's going to be some interesting things in tissue specific transcripts where you're getting 
exons and so forth included that aren't included maybe in the adult tissue or in the irrelevant tissue where potentially you've got variants that are not even being annotated correctly because they're in the non-coding genome, except for in that unique tissue-specific transcript. I'm really hopeful there'll be a whole load of diagnoses there, but we just don't know how many yet because no one's really done the experiment and looked. I think there's a fair amount more to come from just better annotation and interpretation of variants, whether they're missense or splice variants or just understanding better what they're actually doing. And I think that's going to take some sort of multi-omic approach for those individuals to just improve the variant interpretation. And equally, some will just be ultra, ultra rare, and we just need to share data, whether it's from population controls, from you know loads of different ethnic backgrounds, or from cases across the world, so that we can find these really ultra rare causes. So I think whatever proportion we are ultimately able to diagnose, it's going to come from all of those. It sounded like you were maybe saying that if you've got two options of either increased sample size, where you're going to find more and more of those rare long tail of cases. But if we don't understand, if we are not looking at that gene in the first place, we don't understand the biology in some fundamental way, then there's a limit to scale, right? If you're just not looking in the part of the genome where some of the cases are hiding. So you really need both those things. But it sounds a little bit like the latter of understanding the biology in a little bit more detail may be more important at this stage than simply more scale. Is that right or not necessarily? I think both are important, as I say. I guess the problem with scale is obviously the more you scale, the more heterogeneous samples and groups you get. And so it's harder. You're going to get much more mixed phenotypes. And so it could be harder to find just through scale exactly what you're looking for. So there could be more. There's discovery work being done in particular geographically isolated communities where you've got particular founder changes. There's great work being done in phenotypically enriched groups where you've got really, really specific phenotypes. And then you can look for genetic changes that are unique to that phenotype. So I think it's going to be that mixed approach, whereas, the, you know, just scaled of more and more, obviously, we have to deal with that heterogeneity, which I think is going to be more challenging, obviously, the larger the data sets. This might be a good transition to the very large data set, the UK Biobank, where you actually are coming at a similar problem, but from a very different direction, right? There are genes that are incompletely penetrant. You explain that in a really brilliant way. Maybe you can come back to that concept. What are you studying there? And what are the opportunities in a large population cohort like the UK Biobank to understand what genes do in much more detail? UK Biobank is obviously an amazing resource for researchers. And it's really interesting to work with if you're also working with a clinical cohort, because it just has a completely different ascertainment. And although we talk about ascertainment bias all the time, actually it can be a positive thing because you can ask different questions or you can ask the same question, but a different way around. So we're still looking explain at... Explain ascertainment bias for people who don't who are familiar with the term. Sure. Yeah. So obviously in a clinical cohort, you are ascertained basically because of particular phenotype or a disease or maybe a family history. And so you're very much targeting individuals who already have that particular condition. UK Biobank is essentially a sort of voluntary participation from healthy adult volunteers in the UK. They had to be between the age of 40 and 70 at recruitment. They weren't recruited through NHS centres or through doctors and so forth. And so although many of them will have various diseases, they're not completely healthy. There is a well-known bias towards them being healthier than even the average population, wealthier, better educated and so forth, because they've got into this particular research cohort. As a result of which, they're very interesting to study because they do have various conditions that we can investigate. But from my perspective, more interestingly, 
various variants in genes where we absolutely thought this variant should cause a particular condition. And there's very little, either very little evidence that the individual has that condition, or they might have a milder form of it, but clearly it's mild enough that they've managed to get into the UK Biobank and they are operating happily and healthily as an adult in the community. So they're a really interesting population to study from that perspective to try and understand why is this variant apparently not causing this particular disease in this individual where we thought it was in this other cohort? Is there something about the variant we can understand? Is there something about modifiers or their genetic background? Can we explain this kind of population penetrance, which is often a lot lower than the kind of clinical penetrance we see in families affected by particular monogenic conditions? And what are the things that you're finding that modify penetrance. Is there a great example that you've found or that others have found in the UK Biobank that's like the shining star of this? Are we working those out? I'd say we're still working it out. I think there's quite a lot of evidence accumulating now that you can look at lots of different genes associated with lots of different conditions, monogenic conditions or very high risk susceptibility. If you look in a population cohort like UK Biobank, the penetrance is lower than in the patient cohort. And we've seen that time and time again across different conditions. Working out why that is, I think, is maybe the next step. That's obviously much harder. We're we're trying to look for modifiers, and we've got evidence that basically multiple genetic variants are likely to modify your the sort of main primary pathogenic variants. So it could be a polygenic contribution from multiple low-risk single nucleotide polymorphism across the genome. It could be other rare variants that seem to be having a sort of medium effect. And obviously, there's environmental factors. And in some cases, there might well be one modifier variant or gene, but they're pretty hard to get at those particular cases. And then in some cases, I think there are genes where we're starting to see evidence that although you think a particular type of variant causes a condition in all cases, it doesn't actually. And there's clustering of variants, which explains why some do cause the disease and some don't. In those cases, hopefully we'll just be able to separate out the two. And it's not non-penetrance. There's benign variants and pathogenic variants, and they're all being put in the same pot at the moment. So there's a whole mixture of reasons, and they're going to be really hard to untangle, I think. Interesting. What are the couple of things that you think could be added to the UK biobank to help untangle some of those questions? I think without doubt, better phenotype information. We're obviously very lucky. We have, we've got whole exome sequencing data. We will soon have whole genome sequencing data. We've got great proteomic data, metabolomic data, all sorts of incredible data. But the phenotype data in particular links to medical records is much more challenging. I think we have GP records for about half the individuals in there. And we're often, many people are often dependent on the hospital episode statistic data, which is really incredible data, but it requires an individual to have been to a hospital in order to get that data. And so people could be living with all sorts of conditions, but it's not recorded in that data set. And so I think the sort of medical side of the phenotyping would be brilliant if we had more information basically on that side. That makes sense. We had Professor Sir Rory Collins on, it was probably two years ago now, but he was not mincing words about how challenging it was to get access to GP and other medical record data. So I think it's top of mind for them, but it doesn't seem like an easy problem that they've been able to solve. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, they've done an incredible job, but there's there's still a lot of people where we know we're missing data, essentially. And so we can't really say anything about their phenotypes because we just don't know. And it'd be brilliant if we could get something as systematic as we have, like genome data and the phenotype space. What other big programs are you excited about? Are there others besides DDD and UK Biobank that you're thinking about? Because these two are really on two very broad ends of the spectrum from 30,000 ultra rare and severe developmental disorders through to broad swath of the UK population. What other kind of cohort studies are you excited about? 
Yeah, so I guess, I mean, there's two others that I'm not yet quite involved with, but getting involved with and excited about that actually map quite well to those two. So on the DDD side, there's a lot of the work that's being done in the UK NHS now um, through the Genetic Laboratory Hubs. It's incredible. And in particular, at Exeter, we run uh, something called the R14 service, which is a rapid sequencing service for the UK for critically unwell children who might be in intensive care and really need a rapid result because it could affect treatment. And so getting involved with that kind of work is really incredible and quite inspirational what they're doing there because you can really make a big difference to a patient's life. And that's obviously more on the sort of DDD-like cohort, but I think there's a lot more we can do there. And then on the other side, Genomics England is obviously now involved in running Newborn Genomes Project, which is a, a project to look at whether we can use genome sequencing in newborns, potentially to improve newborn screening. And so that's a big project aiming to sequence over 100,000 newborns, have some money from the MRC to look at that and help them working on that side, which I think some of the things we've been doing at UK Biobank will be really helpful and informative in that project. So I think there's those two different aspects that are starting to impinge on sort of childhood conditions and how we best use genome data to improve health. What do you think are the biggest opportunities there in the newborn screening in particular? You know, slightly controversial, I suppose. I mean, there's huge opportunities potentially to improve health. But at the same time, anytime you start screening individuals who are healthy, screening and diagnostic testing are very different. And you have the potential for overdiagnosis and false positives and ultimately doing a lot of harm to health to healthy individuals. So I think while there are huge opportunities to improve health and intervene early for certain conditions, we have to be really wary that we don't, that doesn't come at the cost of a lot of harm to a lot of people. Because as soon as you start screening large numbers, even a small percentage that's wrong can cause quite a lot of harm. It makes sense. Where do you fall on the, if we call it an ethical conundrum or not, but would you say focus on the clinically actionable things, the real obvious ones, and then build out from there? Is that the most achieve the benefit to patients while also not overwhelming the healthcare system or patients with um, false positives? Is that where you think we ought to land with these kind of programs? For me, yeah, absolutely. That would be my focus. I think firstly from the ethical side and you know the clinical need is clear when there's someone who's got a diagnosis needs a diagnosis has a condition we might be able to help them inform treatment inform their prognosis all the rest of it and from the other side just studying penetrance the more we look at it the more we realize we you know genetics is less deterministic than we thought and so we need to be really really cautious if we're going to start thinking about going and case finding so I definitely thought come down on the sort of focus on the clinical more straight cut clinical need cases first Operationally, how do you see that coming into play? Is it a gene list that you're focused on to say we're not going to look anywhere else in the genome? Because there are loads of things you could find if you were looking genome-wide, right? That's obviously lots of people have thought about this and talked about this for a long time now. How do you think about incidental findings, additional findings, secondary findings, all the additional screened for findings and many different terms once you start opening your analysis to things that are beyond the clinical indication that an individual might have arrived with, or indeed if you're just screening, you know, there's loads of different approaches to it. Most people, of course, you have to have some sort of list which has to have some criteria as to why you might be on the list, which has got to be evidence-based that variants in that gene really are associated with the condition in the majority of people. And indeed, if you're thinking about screening, that if you actually intervene, you do improve health. So you can't, you're not just finding cases, you're actually able to make an improvement in the health of the individual, the result of it. How, um, slightly left field question, but how did you find your way to genomics in the first place? You started, it sounded like on the protein side of the equation. How did you drift over or jump over into genomics from there? 
kind of windy path, actually, sort of slightly accidentally, I suppose, ended up working at a charity called the PhD Foundation in Cambridge, who really think about genomics in public health, these kinds of questions about when you might use genomics, whether it's to augment screening or improve health, basically. And that was much more thinking around policy and writing reports around new technologies and how we use these things to improve health. Then an opportunity came up to work on the DDD study, and I'd literally just written a report about next generation sequencing and how transformative it was going to be and how important it would be. So I thought this is a great opportunity to go and you know find out more about this actually in practice. And so rediscovered my love of kind of molecular biology, I guess, and understanding um, the fundamental science beyond some of these conditions. And so I've ended back in academia, but in the genetic side rather than the protein side. And as I say, occasionally pleased when I get to join the two again. And it, is it fair to say that when you finished your PhD, you weren't thinking about starting a group, being a group leader, but you've found your way back to that path, which I, for anyone who is a PhD student, I think you get the linear path really drummed into you, right? That I hear PhD, postdoc, associate professor, full professor, whatever it may be in your country, but more people than not take a much windier path. So was, did you think that you wanted to go back in academia eventually, or were you following your passions and just ended up where you are? Yeah, I don't think I knew, actually. I think maybe it's people get an idea that people know exactly what they want to do in their PhD. Yeah. And if you don't know, then there's something wrong with you. As you say, that the path is very clear. But actually, I didn't really know. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. There was aspects of academia I enjoyed and aspects that I didn't. I was sure I wanted to do something interesting and something worthwhile, but I didn't exactly know what that was or how to find it. And I guess I've found my path that was interesting and hopefully useful. It means I have a slightly unusual background for a PI, but hopefully that means I've got some useful skills that I can bring to academic research that maybe others wouldn't have if they'd just taken the standard path. I don't know. Like like you say, it's good that there are there's more acceptance that you can go in and out of an academic career more easily than perhaps used to be thought. Have you had a chance to play around with AlphaFold or any of these other new protein models or not yet? I've had a little bit of a look, a few particular favorite proteins or whatever, to see what the predictions are like. How are they from an expert's perspective? You weren't a crystallographer, were you? So you're not, (laughs) no. (laughs) No, no, I I did spend a while trying to crystallize some proteins, but it didn't work. So So I'm all for doing it um, programmatically. I mean, I guess there's still work to be done. There's a lot of bits of proteins where the homology model that we were able to draw before based on similarity to other conserved sequences in other animals where we had actual experimental structures, that often provides a very good prediction of what that bit of protein structure is. And I don't know that AlphaFold is much better than that in those regions, but often those regions are just little bits of proteins. And what AlphaFold has managed to do is join them up so that you've got a prediction from end to end of a protein, which makes it much easier from a genomic perspective to map your variants into their location in the protein. I think there's still a lot of work to be done around some of those regions that are in between, though, because we don't have any structure, experimental structure for them. And of course, therefore, the prediction is often just disordered. We don't really know if they are truly natively disordered or if there is a ligand or something biologically, which means that they do have some kind of structure in their cellular context. So I think there's still a lot more, hopefully, to come from some experimental techniques, which will then inform future protein modeling. Yeah, they'll feed into each other, won't they, and improve. Just to close out here, what other topics, technologies are you most excited about right now that you feel like isn't getting enough tension that people should be thinking about? learning more about? Gosh, that's a very broad question. Of course, there's loads in genomics. There's loads of new technologies, whether it's you know long read sequencing or ultra-fast sequencing. There's lots of 
pretty excited about RNA sequencing, actually, but particularly long RNA sequencing. So you can get transcript isoforms, so you can actually see the full length of the mRNA, and which allows you to map back to the genome and work out which bits are actually included in the RNA, which right. is, so that's pretty cool. Oh, so rather than just getting the reads and mapping them in, is that using MOX for nanopore PacBio with some kind of fancy chemistry? Exactly so, yep. Yeah. I think that should be really interesting to look at. For me, still, it comes always through the lens of rare disease. I still think that's where you can have the biggest impact in terms of improving the lives of patients, potentially, because if you can find a diagnosis, that's the beginning of being able to potentially treat it, manage it, help people understand prognosis, connect patients through appropriate support groups, all the rest of it. So my focus is still on that. And I think you know we've made huge strides in the last decade or so, and I think there's still a lot to come still for rare disease in particular. Yeah. What can the rare disease world learn from the common disease world and vice versa? You got a foot in each camp, I think, which gives you an interesting perspective. I guess I slightly do. Yeah. Obviously, the common disease world has done some very exciting things as well. They've been quite collaborative, I think, which is good. And so I think increasingly rare disease world is doing that as well. But anytime you're dealing with patients, the, there are people who struggle with the concept of sharing data. And fundamentally, we have to share data. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to find diagnoses. The, the large set of patients who don't have a diagnosis currently, and I think some of the common disease world have been very good at that, and particularly sharing data so you can do meta-analysis and bringing a more statistically rigorous approach to associating genes with variants. And I think increasingly we will need that because the more sequencing that we do, the more incredibly rare variants we find. And so we're going to need to have some sort of rigorous approach to working out whether they're actually associated with disease or not. So I guess I think that's probably one of the big things we could learn. And how about the reverse? Any that the rare disease world, maybe phenotyping. <laughs> <laughs> phenotyping. It's fun working with some people now, as I do, who come from the complex traits and common disease world, and they're just starting to get to grips with rare variants and some of the challenges around variants, the kinds of you know quality control procedures you need to go through to check that your variants yeah. really are real, particularly if they're only in a small number of individuals, but also that you can get really large effect variants. And so it's actually of interest. And we're doing lots of interesting things, trying to work out how to group variants together in the coding and non-coding space as we move into the rare variant world for common disease. I fondly remember for the first couple of years of my PhD, thinking I've discovered all sorts of things that just turn out to be technical artifacts that you or Matt or somebody else very patiently uh, walked me back on, uh, not getting too excited until I looked at the IGV plot and really see if it's real. Yeah, sadly, that's quite common. Unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of excitement. The more exciting it is, the more um, suspicious one has to be, unfortunately. Yes, that's right. Words to live by. Anything we missed that you want to cover, Caroline? Otherwise, thank you. This was an amazing discussion. No, thank you. It's been great. Really enjoyable. Great. And thanks, everybody, as always, for listening. If you have guest recommendations or if you want to give us any feedback, then you can email me at podcast at sonogenetics.com. And as always, if you leave us a review or share us with a friend or colleague, that's the thing that we'd really appreciate. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>